0: At Keeley Companies, they are all about the Keeleyan culture, and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand, driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love, just with a fresh, streamlined look and new additions to the family. Who knows? And maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com.
1: Well, hello,
0: my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Some people, as we all know, marry into royalty. You can read the tabloids for that one. But Kyle Petty, that's our guest today, he was born into it. As a third generation and the only son of NASCAR's winningest driver ever, that guy's name is Richard Petty, he's known as the King, Kyle spent decades competing at motorsports' highest divisions, earning a reputation as a classic competitor and one of the greatest philanthropists the NASCAR family has ever known. He also spent a lifetime trying to figure out who he was outside of the shadow of being Richard Petty's son. Well, he figured that one out. For more than 20 years, Kyle has hosted the annual Kyle Petty Charity Ride across America. That ride has raised more than $20 million for an organization called Victory Junction. Victory Junction is a year-round camp that Petty's family created to enrich the lives of children ages 6 to 16 with chronic and serious medical conditions. Where did this idea come from for the camp? Well, it was founded to honor the life and the loss of his son, Adam, who died at age 20. Today in this episode, you're going to hear a bit about Kyle's inside perspective of stock car racing. You're going to hear about the rise of that racing culture in America's culture. But far more importantly, I'm going to encourage all of you to remain tuned in and turn the radio up because you're going to hear about what it's like to be a grandson, a son a brother, a father, go through loss, experience life. You're going to hear how he weathered the ultimate death of his son and ultimately how he used his platform to provide life-changing and life-giving experiences for others. My friends, buckle up, get the helmet on, make sure that you are fueled up because you're going to need it for this ride as I have the honor of bringing on my friend. He's going to be yours by the end of the podcast. His name is Kyle Petty. Kyle, Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm a big fan of yours, so thank you for having me. Well, dude, I'm a huge fan of yours, (laughs) your sons, your fathers, and your grandfathers. It is a pleasure and a thrill to have you on our show. For a few of our listeners who may not know the name Kyle Petty or the last name Petty, if you had to introduce yourself to our audience, how would you introduce yourself?
1: So if I had to introduce myself, I, I would say that I am a third generation race car driver. I grew up in rural North Carolina where everybody grew tobacco, we just happened to grow race cars. And everybody that, that grew tobacco or had farms, they're still farming and I'm still messing with race cars. And that's kind of the, the environment that I grew up in. My grandfather, Lee Petty, uh, was one of the first NASCAR race car drivers, one of the first champions in the sport. My dad went on to, they referred to him as the king. Uh, he won 200 races and, and seven championships. I won a few races, spent a few years behind the steering wheel, and then I had a son that came along. So I've been on every side of the sport, but in the end, I'm just a kid from North Carolina that got to live a dream, and that's, that's what it all boils down to.
0: So We're going to slowly unpack that dream and part of the nightmare, because it's not all perfect. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. There, there's some absolute storm clouds and, and tragedy that are part of your dream, part of your life as well. But going back to the patriarch, your grandfather Lee, many of our viewers and listeners don't know really that the origin story of racing. Yeah. Lee does because he lived it. Talk about
1: Lee, and talk about what got him into racing in the first place. He was looking for a way to make a buck. Honestly, you know, you're you're in the rural South and, and rural North Carolina. He had raised tomatoes. He had he had had a trucking company. I tell everybody, the trucking company, really he was in the beverage transportation business, which is run moonshine. He ran liquor, so I I will admit that. Uh, It's okay, maybe it's not politically correct, but I will admit that. And then stock car racing came along. Stock car racing in the South was really born, and a lot of people think it was born out of moonshine, and it was to some degree. It was also born out of uh, so many young country boys and so many young soldiers coming back from World War II, and the atrocities they had seen, uh, and, and the world that they had seen, it's, it's tough to keep that down on the farm when you come back. Uh, there, there were a lot of things going on in their heads, a lot of things going on in their souls. But there was nothing like chopping the fenders off of an old 44 and running it through a cow pasture as fast as you could go and beating your next door neighbor. And that's kind of where stock car racing came to, the emergence and the convergence of those two. And my grandfather ran the very first race in Charlotte, North Carolina, borrowed a car, rolled it over and had to catch a ride back to greensboro which is about 80 or 90 miles away and he told my grandma on the way back i think i'm gonna like this driving we're gonna make some money doing this and that's where my grandfather started in the 50s when most guys that drove had other jobs he dedicated himself to be nothing but a race car driver he was the first guy in nascar to be a full-time driver. He won three championships and put food on the table. And that's what it was all about for him. It wasn't about the trophies. It wasn't about the wins. It was about leaving on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday night or a Friday afternoon and having that first place money. So he's successful behind the wheel. He also raises a son who becomes pretty successful himself. Would Would you talk about your dad? My grandmother and grandfather had two sons, my uncle Maurice and my father Richard. Maurice chose to be an engine builder to be a mechanic, and, and he's the Hall of Fame, NASCAR Hall of Fame engine builder. Uh, my dad obviously is the NASCAR Hall of Famer uh, as a driver, but um, my dad started racing in, in the late, late 50s. He was not allowed to race until he was 21 by my grandfather's rules, right after he started racing. My grandfather had a horrendous accident, went over the wall at Daytona, spent almost six months in the hospital, and the business and the company fell on the shoulders of, of my dad and my uncle. And they built Petty Enterprises and built the race team into what it would become—the dominant force in the '60s and the '70s and into the early '80s. Uh, they won 200 races. They did stuff and set records that, as we go forward, uh, you look back on with awe because they'll never—they'll never be broken. They'll never be challenged. Some of these records, there's no way. But they had that focus. They had that focus to to win. And and the difference between my grandfather and my father, my dad could have cared less about the money. He wanted the trophy. He wanted to leave there that day, holding that trophy over his head, knowing that everybody looked at him and said, that guy was the best guy here this day. Not that that guy was the, took the most money home. That guy was the best guy here. So his philosophy was a little bit different, but he's won everything that, that you could win. When you talk of, of the greatest NASCAR drivers, he's arguably the guy. For me, he is the guy. You know, he had a great career as a driver and now he ha- he's having a great career as an owner. He's 85 years old, still goes to the racetrack every single week has been doing it since he was 13 years old. So not much has changed in his life. They just don't let him get in the car and put a helmet on, but he's, he's still a racer. Your daddy gets in this accident down in Daytona, spends six plus months in the hospital. Very
0: serious, very traumatic. Why wouldn't you board up the shop and be done with racing for, for all time after an accident like that?
1: I'm gonna go back to we're from rural North Carolina and everybody raised cows, corn, tobacco, whatever. It's the same thing that that has a farmer walk out his front door and his crops have frozen or there's a virus that has come through and killed half of his herd or tobacco prices are down. What keeps you coming back the next year? That's what you do. That's what you believe in. That's what you have a passion for. That's what you love. And and listen, it might reach up and bite you every now and then, but you still love it. You still love it more than anything in the world. And And I think that passion for the sport, that willingness to not ever give up, ever give up. I grew up and, and, and lived my life a funny way. They drop a green flag on a race and that race is not over until they throw the checkered flag. Now you may get in an accident and you go back in the garage and you work on this thing and you go back out there and yeah, you're behind, you're way behind and you're not going to catch up and win, but you know what? You're going to finish. You're going to finish. If you keep digging, you're going to finish. We always had this other, other thing at our race shop where Sunday night at 12 midnight, you could complain when the race was over with all you wanted to. We would all commiserate in our misery from, from when that race was over with on a Sunday afternoon until 12 midnight. But at 12 midnight, you had to look ahead to the next race. So you didn't look back. You always look forward. And, and that's just the way I grew up. And that, that's been instilled in me. And I think that's for, for our family. That's just the way it's always been. Yes, that accident happened at Daytona but they woke up the next morning and had to move forward. And the way they moved forward was the way that they knew how to go. was with race cars and in the the racing business and the racing industry and to build back and to build back stronger. And that's what they did.
0: And I I can't remember if I've heard you share this story before or read it in your book, but you're six years old. You want a go-kart. Your dad says it's too dangerous.
1: So he gets you a motorcycle. Talk about your dad's rationale on that one. His rationale is... A motorcycle will teach you respect for speed. A motorcycle won't let you go above your talent level before it puts you on the ground. His, his opinion on a go-kart was you can go as fast as you want to, and it's probably not gonna turn over. It's probably not gonna do something to hurt you unless you do something really idiotic, to be honest with you, unless you put yourself in a bad situation. A motorcycle, it'll teach you a lesson at five miles an hour. It'll teach you a lesson at 15 miles an hour, according to him. And in the end, I, I think his, his reasoning was right uh, because you learn respect for, for what, a, what a bike can do or what speed can do. And you learn respect for, for what your ability is and how far you can press your ability. And when you know you're expanding that wall or you're moving that ability and you're moving that, that needle a little bit. That was his reasoning, a few broken bones later, and taught me a lot about about racing. It taught me a lot about speed, and it taught me a lot about respect.
0: You you said my father arguably is the greatest racer of all time. I think for me, it's inarguably. He is the greatest racer of all time and was the biggest name in racing of all time. And yet, even that big name and uh, that successful guy needs a rock to lean his head against. Talk about your mom, Linda.
1: As impressed as I am by your dad, I'm actually even more impressed by your mother. Yeah. My mom was everything. There's no doubt. We don't, he's not Richard Petty without Linda Petty. I'm not Kyle. We're, we, we didn't grow up. We're, we don't have the values we have. We don't have, there's a piece of us missing. And my dad will still look at me today sometimes. And he's like, you're too much like your mom. You know, when we're, when we're having a, a heated discussion about a topic, he's like, you're just too much like your mom. I can't argue with you. First, she was a Brownie scout leader and then a Cub scout leader. And then she was a Girl Scout leader and she would have been a Boy Scout leader if they had to let her be a Boy Scout leader back in the in, in the 70s, but that didn't happen back then. She was on the school board for 20 some years, president of the PTA. She was involved in absolutely every aspect of their of, of our lives. To this day, I say the only reason they let me out of high school is because she was on the school board and she got me a pardon. She was everything. Uh, we went to church on Sundays, uh, at Christmas time. You know, we we would spend four or five days during Christmas time. And we would shop and we would shop and we would shop and we would buy socks and t-shirts and clothing items. And then the day before Christmas, we would go out and give packages to families that my mother knew was not going to have the Christmas that we were blessed to have. And that was something that always stuck with her empathy and her, her desire to give back, to give to other people. And not, not ever want anything in return. That came from my grandmother once, too. My grandmother once would, would stop. I mean, she worked in a, in a meal her whole life. She'd see somebody that was homeless or somebody that, that needed something, and she would give them a little money. And I will never forget. I would hear her friends and hear people say, they're just going to do something bad with that. And she would always say, that's between them and God. That's not between me and them. I did what I was led to do. I gave. and And that's the way she looked at it. My mom... I mean, school was the most important thing. We talk about going to the racetracks. When we were little, as soon as school was out, we would get in a car and we would travel. We'd go to California, we'd go to Michigan, we'd go to Tennessee. I mean, we went all over the country following my father as he raced, but we never went anywhere that we didn't go somewhere educational. If we went to Tennessee, we went to the Hermitage to learn about Andrew Jackson. When we went to Michigan, We went to the Henry Ford Museum. I've been to the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan 10 million times, that's how big that place is, because it was an opportunity to learn something during the summer and to see something and to see the cars and to see the history that that he had created there. I'll never forget standing at the front desk with my mom and and my mom said, where are the Redwoods at? And the lady behind the desk said, oh, they're about three and a half hours from here. That's a long way. My mom said, we just drove 42 hours straight in, in a van to get to California to watch my husband race. I don't think four more hours is gonna hurt these kids at all. She threw us in the back of a van we headed north to the Redwoods. But it was education for us. And that was important to her, that we not only had the school and the education from school, but we had the worldly education. We had an education of what was around us and the blessings that we had. You disappointed your mother, though, because she wanted
0: you to become a pharmacist. All this education and Redwoods and trips in the van and the station wagon, all this stuff to try to pour into you, and you drop the ball, man, and you get it behind the wheel of a car to spend your career now. Talk about letting your mother down, and instead of choosing pharmacy school, choosing to become
1: a race car driver. And I say this in a joking way, so please. There was a drugstore in town that my mother grew up in, 2,000 people. very small town. Uh, it was 2,000 people during the census in 1900 and when they did the census in 2020, I think it had grown by about 10 people. But there was a a, a drugstore that my mother loved when she was in school. They would go there and it was the typical 50s, Bobby socks, let's have a soda at the counter. And she just envisioned that someday that she would buy that place and that I would be a pharmacist and run it. And all I wanted to do from the time I was little was drive a race car. And I had already started at the shop. My dad was letting me work. He made me work in each department for about a year to learn. And when I got uh, when I got to be a senior and got out of school, it was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready to drive. But my dad still had that 21 rule, just like his dad. Uh, so my mom said, you, you go to college. She did not want me to drive a race car. She had seen the heartache that, that my dad and uh, the disappointment of, of losses. We talk about the wins Richard Petty had, uh, but you gotta go back, he ran 1184 races. So remember, he lost almost a 1000 races to win those 200. She looked at things like that. And she was not sure my temperament was was suited for that. But uh, I went to night school, they finally kicked me out of night school after about a week, because I wouldn't take a bath before I came down there. I'd show up smelling like paint, Bondo dust and lacquer. Uh, And I I, I told the teachers, I'm like, you know, I didn't know it was a beauty contest. I thought I came here to learn and they gave my mom her, uh, her tuition back and I think that was probably the saddest day of her life, that, that her firstborn was not going to go to college and not going to get a degree in anything. He was just going to hang out at that stupid race shop, just like her husband always had. And that was going to be his lot in life.
0: What was the first time you recognized that you had what it took to be a driver, not just to be the son of the king, but to be a wonderful driver yourself?
1: I don't think I ever recognized that. I think you always chase that you always chase something that it's always out in front of you. I think the day that you think you, you are good enough or the day that you think you have made it is the day you stop and somebody passes you uh, is the way I always looked at it. Again, I go back to the way I was raised. You're only as good as what you did last week. So that always motivated you to be better the next week. I think early on, I realized that I did have a skill set that I could work with to be good. I did realize early on also that I was not Richard Petty, that that Richard Petty was Richard Petty and Lee Petty was Lee Petty. And they were two distinct personalities and I had a distinct personality. And and I think guys like Richard Petty, guys like Jeff Gordon, guys like Jimmy Johnson, I've heard your story, Ozzie Smith, that's rare air. They breathe rare air. And sometimes they're so good, they don't even realize how they do the things they do because it just comes so natural to them. Uh, It didn't come natural to me. I had to work at it. Part of it came natural, but then you had to work to perfect the pieces that didn't come. They were the total package. Coming to terms with that early and not trying to compete and compare myself to everything that he did gave me the freedom to be who I was and gave me the freedom to succeed in my own way and and not use that as a yardstick. Because I think that's what happens to so many people who have successful parents is they use their parent as a yardstick. Parents not in a yardstick. It's just an example of what could be or what might be. But it's not to measure yourself against. You have to grow at your own rate and be who you are. And that's, that's who I've always been. I've been very blessed. Uh, and that goes back to my mother and my grandmothers uh, kind of keeping you grounded that way too. Kyle, that is, that is so well said. For, for
0: a lot of our listeners and viewers, they're not super familiar with the racetrack, with Talladega or Daytona, or the, these incredible places where you spent your childhood weekends then the majority of your life. What might surprise us to learn about
1: racing? One time I moved in a community and they came and knocked on the door. I was in the city and they knocked on the door and they said, you won't be driving your race car back and forth from work. And if you do, we would appreciate it if you don't come in at night, late at night. And I'm like, what do you think? I just drive my race car up and down the highway. A lot of people just assumed at that time that a race car was just a street car that you just turned into a race car and you drove it around. And then you just went and raced it on something. It. But it is, it is such a big business. These teams spend hundreds of millions of dollars now to run a single car. You know, the Cardinals, they go out and practice and they they have a practice day and they they have batting practice or whatever. So if a cup team wants to go practice or have a a batting practice, let's just call it batting practice. If a a NASCAR cup team wants to go to a batting practice to take all their equipment to the race, to take the car, to do the things they do, it's going to cost them about three to four hundred thousand dollars just to go practice for a day. These teams, all they do is race. They play the game. They play the game on. They they don't practice that way. So it's a crazy it's a crazy sport. I, people think speed wins races. It's strategy. And I'll keep coming back to baseball. Uh, a lot of times the race comes down to a pitcher's duel. There's not any home runs yet. It's not a high scoring game. It's not an offensive game. It's a pitcher's duel. And the pitchers are the crew chiefs. They're the guys that sit on the bench and see the chessboard and pit at the right time and change four tires or pit at the right time and change two tires, or, or do different things. So. I think as you get into the race, uh, racing is a lot like baseball from that aspect. When you start looking, it's not just a bunch of cars riding in circles and the fastest car always wins. That's not the way it is. And it's not just a bunch of guys riding in circles with a death wish, trying to go out and just be crazy. That's not what it's about either. There's a skill set that, that these guys have. And the other thing that I think people would be surprised at is how deeply ingrained this sport is in families. You've got families like mine, the Petty family. You had the Earnhardts. You had the Allisons, the Bush brothers right now, the Lavani brothers. I can't tell you how many times in my life that people would come up to me and they would have a a Polaroid picture. It would be Richard Petty and a father and a little eight-year-old boy. And they would hold it up and they would say, that's me when I was eight years old. Now this is my eight-year-old son and I want his photo taken with you. And that's a generational thing. It, it's, it's moved on. That gen- next generation became petty fans because there was another group of petties there and you grow up as part of their family. So I think that's a big part of it too. You think about this sport um, and a lot of people think about it Well, that dirt track down the road, they run on Saturday night and they're always there until 11, 30, 12 o'clock. They, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. Uh, and, and, you think they're just a bunch of, of hellions and roughnecks out there, uh, but I think you would be surprised at how grounded and how wholesome and what the people that participate in this sport, how good of people they really are. Explain to me and our listeners
0: about the loyalty of of the fans. If, if they follow a driver who races for Lowe's and that driver the following year races for Home Depot, they no longer go back to Lowe's. Yeah. They switch from Coke to Pepsi, from Coors to, to Bud Light. Yep. What is it about that type of fan that allows them to go where their driver goes next?
1: Again, I'm coming come back to St. Louis because my friend Kenny Wallace is a huge Cardinals fan. All Kenny's right? so, on our show too, man. Yeah, Kenny is the epitome of what a race fan is too. He just pulls that way for the Cardinals. He is a fanatic. That's what fan means, fanatic. And, and that's what our fans are. They are so deeply loyal, whether it be Dale Earnhardt Sr. or Dale Earnhardt Jr., whether it be Kevin Harvick, you know, Kevin Harvick, sponsored by Jimmy John's. I'm not eating a sub from Subway. I'm a Jimmy John's guy, you know, and and that's the way they are. They understand, and and this is what I think that that separated our sport, and and a lot of sports are moving in this direction. Golf, especially, and some of these these other sports with with PSAs and with patches on their uniforms and all this stuff, but our sport was always run and always driven. And we, we, we use the term, and it's used widely now, OPM, other people's money, okay? Not our money, other people's money. So if we could get Anheuser-Busch to put money on a race car, it was, it's a circle. Here's Anheuser-Busch. They pay me money so I can drive a race car. So I'm nice to the fans. So they buy beer, so they pay me money so I can drive a race car, so I'm nice to the fans, so they buy beer, you know, and it, that's the way it works, and that's why fans are loyal, they're loyal because they know when they buy that Jimmy John's sub, they know when they buy that box of Tide, that that means that company has the finances to, to spend on Daryl Waltrip driving that Tide car, or, or, or Kevin Harvick, or whoever it may be, and I, I think that is the, that's the big part. They understand that they are part of the economic base and part of the economic cycle uh, that drives the sport. It's, it's been that way forever. That's something we don't have a lot of in this country now. You know, everybody's loyal to the dollar, not to the brand. And they'll switch off as soon as the next new thing comes along and everybody's always looking for the next new thing. Um, but in, in, in our sport, there's still a lot of that there. Kyle, you had a three-decade-long
0: career, a little bit more than that. Two highlights, though, I've heard you talk about in the past. Number one, 1979. What, what was it about the 1979 season, in particular, a race that
1: you and your dad may have shared that was a, a highlight from that career? Yeah, for me, 79, the, the two greatest races in my life, and this was, was the first one, was 1979. We'd fallen on some hard times at, at Petty Enterprises, and some guys had left uh, to go to, to other jobs. Um, because they thought we were going to close the door. We were never going to close the door, but they thought we were going to close the door. So it was left to to Richie Bars and Steve Mill and myself. Uh, I was working in the fab shop and we built the car. We built the Oldsmobile that my dad went to Daytona in 79 and won the Daytona 500. To build a car for your father and to know that your hands touch that car, you helped create that car from a stack of metal in, in the corner and then to watch your dad go out and win the race, I, I could not ever imagine after that time, and even when I won races, I never, that never came off the top, that never came off the top as, as the best best day for me, because that was something that I was a part of, and that I felt like not only was I a part of, part of me was in that car, mm-hmm. and I gave it to, to, we gave it to my dad, and he went out and won with it. And made us all winners, and that was that was an incredibly special moment. Still, is a special moment for me. I've got pictures of that and us in victory lane, and all all over my house because that's still that's just still a that's still one of those moments. And you won the Arco race that weekend. I won the Arco race, yeah. And and I didn't have a clue, man. Didn't have a clue. Um, my dad took me to Daytona. You know, I, I, we talked earlier about him giving me a motorcycle uh, instead of a go kart to teach me respect for speed. Uh, he never let me drive a race car until one day he said, let's go to Daytona. I didn't drive a half mile. I didn't drive a mile track. I didn't drive a mile and a half or a two mile. He took me straight to the two and a half mile Daytona uh, International Speedway and said, let's go out and run 190 miles an hour if you want to. And I, I was 18. I'd never driven. Uh, I'd been fast, but not not anywhere close to that. But So I go out and, and win the race the same weekend. And that made it special. That, and that was that was big. But you know, when you're 18, for me, that was something I did. And, and it was personal. And, and I looked at it and I thought that, you know, that's big. I can build something off this. But even at that, even at that 1979, I don't, I don't believe that was as big a, that's not as big a memory for me as, as my dad in Victory
0: Lane. Really cool. The second memory you've shared in the past, I think, reflects your heart for family. So the first one was really about your dad. The next one's really about your son. Yeah. Talk, 1998.
1: 98 uh, was Adam in an ARCA race. I'd left the team I was driving for and had started my own team. We had a couple extra race cars and Adam was running some ASA stuff throughout the Midwest, which is a series of racing like NASCAR. So it's a smaller series. He had a weekend off and they were running an ARCA race uh, at Charlotte. And so we took a car over there and uh, we crashed in practice. He crashed in practice. And we spent, man, we spent 10 or 12 hours beating the fenders out and putting a rear bumper on it, getting parts and pieces and put it back together. And, and he was right there with us. And we worked side by side, shoulder to shoulder put that thing back together. And the next night he went out and won the race. And that topped what my dad had done. That's the race, because for me, I was the car owner. We worked side by side, we worked hand in hand. He was right there with me, then he drove it. And you were a part of your son's first ARCA race, uh, ARCA win, just like my dad had been for me, but I had been for my dad's last Daytona win. So that was that was a huge piece for me too. And that, that almost brought my life full circle to do something for your dad and do something for your son and have them both be standing in victory lane still is, is just, I can't, I can't, it's hard to find words to describe how that makes your heart and soul feel. You and your dad share this beautiful million dollar smile. It's it's
0: just uniquely petty, but the only one that has a better smile than either of you is your boy. Yeah. I think Adam, not only in victory lane that day, but in every video, every picture, every interview I've ever seen or watched, he just has this vibrancy and
1: buoyancy and joyfulness about him. Would you just talk about your boy for a little bit? Let's break all that back down to he was just a kid. And that's what it boils down to. He was a kid with everything in front of him, everything. The world lay at his feet in a lot of ways. you know. And I, I'll go back and I, I'll tell you this is I got him a go-kart, and he would go go-kart racing with a friend of mine, and he'd come in, he's like, man, we need a better motor, we need this, we need-. I'm like, eh, eh, you don't need any of that, you're a kid, just have fun, go have fun, you know, race, enjoy it, so he came, he won a couple of races, and, and that was good, so then we, I said, okay, he's 14, we'll get a real car, bought a, a late model car, and we got to put it together, so we'd work, man, we, we had a little shop there, and we'd work on it, we worked on it for, Maybe a month, maybe a little bit longer, just piddled on it after school and just messed around with it. And for people that don't know, piddle is a Southern word that just means not very fast. You just, you're just piddling along a little while he he started coming up with excuses on why he couldn't come work on it. Some time went by maybe six, seven months. He was 15, a little bit older by then. And he said, how's that car coming? And I said, I don't know. And he said, you hadn't been working on it. And I said, your car, not mine. Why would I work on your car? why Why am I working on your car if you want to work on it I'll work on it with you but we I'm not going to work on your car so boom man it was like a, a switch flip and, and he was on it and I think that's the day that he became focused to be this is what I want to be this is what I'm going to do but at the same time he never lost that joy yes. of everything's new everything's exciting I get to go to Daytona, I get to go to Charlotte, I get to go to Rockingham, I get to race against Mark Martin, I get to race against Matt Matt Kenseth, I get to race against these guys. I think it was just that it was Christmas every day you pulled into a racetrack. And I think that showed in his face, it showed in his actions. And he was just still at that stage. And and I think that's, that's the joyous part I remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always hold in my heart is that here's a kid that got to do what he wanted to do, and loved every minute of it. Becomes the fourth generation to do so, which yes. is
0: just unimaginable and so remarkable. You and your daughter are traveling together. You get a message, call Mike Helton. Call Mike Helton. Talk about that message and what happens
1: afterwards. And I knew it couldn't be good when, when it was that. We had landed in London. So I called Mike and he said that Adam had been in an accident, um, that it didn't look good. Uh, but they, he would call me back later. So I went up to the room and I I just told Montgomery Lee that he had been in an accident. We were off that weekend. The cup guys were off. And I I used to always would take Austin or or Montgomery Lee. They would travel with me at different times because I was with Adam all the time because he was always at a racetrack. So we had gone over there because she showed horses. She just wanted to see what it was like in England. Mike called back pretty quick and just said he didn't make it. In that moment, I felt... I was stunned and shocked and felt like I'd just been punched. But at the same time, I felt so bad for Mike having to call a father and tell a father that your son didn't make it. You know, that I can't imagine that. I, I've told Mike a million times that that that's I will be bound to him forever uh, and grateful to him forever for having the courage to be able to do that and the way he did it. I did not tell Montgomery Lake. I did not tell my government. I just could not tell her. I could not bring myself. So I told her we had to go home. And I did not tell her until we flew back and landed in New York. Then I told her that her brother had passed away uh, and that he had been killed in an accident in New Hampshire. And she was devastated. And that was the hardest part. I think the hardest part, but it gave me a focus too. So I didn't have to think about it. You know, I, 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 I thought about it all. I wanted to think about it. And I had been in a race car and I knew what wrecks were and I knew what accidents could be. And I knew how damaging and devastating I had grown up with death my whole life. From the time I was a little boy, I would go to the racetrack and play with kids in the infield. Some point in time, their mother would come get them and I would never see those kids again because their father had passed away in the race. My uncle Randy was killed at Talladega on Pitt road when I was 14 years old. And we were, we had just been standing beside each other seconds before that. So you grow up with that, but you don't ever think that it's going to, it's going to be this close. And it throws your whole world into disorder because it's not. It's, that's not the way nature works. A tree grows and drops an acorn, and, and then the small tree grows and the big tree dies. But the small tree grows. The small tree shouldn't, shouldn't go first. And in this case, the small tree went first. So it makes you question a lot of things in life. I never questioned my faith. Uh, never made me question my faith. Uh, again, my grandmother Owens, when, when Randy was killed, had always said, you can be bitter or blessed. Um, my grandfather once had been bitter and I had watched the bitterness slowly eat him away. But I'd watched my grandmother flourish and and continue to grow and continue to be the woman that she was. So for me, Mike's call was was the hardest call I've ever gotten in my life. And it's the hardest call any parent could ever get. I mean,
0: I've heard you share this several times and I read it in your book and and it just it moves me to tears every time I hear it, every time I read it, every time I think about it, not only for you, Kyle, but for the loss of any parent who gets that call or that knock on the door, that their loved one is no longer gonna be coming home. For me in particular, when I read the way that you and your daughter grieved her brother, Manage it's just stirring. So uh, she loses her best friend. She loses her big brother. You lose your son. You guys have to figure out what to do with this. About nine days later, you're going to have this small little family service for, for your boy. And it just keeps slowly growing. You know, you realize you got a pretty big family. And there's a couple of neighbors and a couple of his buddies. And it, it just keeps going and going and going. Ultimately, I think it's held at a High Point University. 1,500 people attend this memorial service for
1: Adam. What do you remember from that day? Very little. I I think you go through a period where you're walking and talking, but you're not there. And in a a strange way, and I'm going to interject something here and before we move on. Watching that piece on you and listening to your mother. When she said, so it's a 50-50 shot. And the doctor said, no, I don't think you're hearing me. That brought back so many emotions for me. That moment, hearing your mother's voice and and watching her expressions, because I've been there. And and, and it's like, you just know that that went to a place in her heart and in her soul that mm-hmm. nothing else could touch. Nothing else could touch but a child, but your child being in that situation. And yes, we, we had the thing at, at, at High Point University and Montgomery Lee was the only one really strong enough to stand up and talk. Austin had done an incredible job of, of flying to New Hampshire to be with his brother and bring his brother back. This is where for me, in, in a lot of ways, my world as a race car driver and my total, my whole world changed because I looked at, at first it was something that happened to me. It was something that happened you're so selfish and it's just, that, that happened to me. Why did that happen to me? Why did that happen to, to this? And then you realize it happened to, to Austin and Montgomery Lee. It happened to my dad. It happened to my sisters. It happened to our family. And then during the course, as the, right after the accident, before this even happened, before the funeral, I start to get letters and cards from fans. When I say letters and cards, I mean, eight page letters. I mean, cards written front and back. And, And I sat and I read everyone. And I realized in that, in those moments that I lost a son, but these other people lost a family member too. Our family was so ingrained in these other families. We were there on Sunday afternoons with them. We were there 36 times a year. Our family was in your living room. Kyle, in, in hearing all that, man, it, it, it reminds me
0: of some of your most important work, which actually didn't take place on the track. It takes place right offside the track, and it affects kids' lives profoundly and their families. Talk about Victory Junction.
1: I said before, that's when I realized in those moments that my, my world had changed and, and my purpose had changed. I was, I was very, very blessed to have run some sports car races with Paul Newman. And everybody knows about the hole in the wall gang camp and all, all that, you know, and, and because, and Paul makes popcorn and Paul makes salad dressing and, you know, and it sends kids to camp. And that was all well and good. And Adam and I had had an opportunity to go to a, one of Paul's camps in Florida called Boggy Creek. And we had seen this camp and it was just, it just took your breath away. It, it just, what, what these kids experience at camp And the kids that came to camp, the kids with with spina bifida, craniofacial disorders, uh, whatever illness they had. And it was like illnesses. And what like illnesses mean is that if you had gastrointestinal week, everybody had a gastrointestinal disorder. Everybody had spina bifida. So there's 120 kids with the same illness, with the same illness. And, And that is so empowering for these kids. So we had talked about it. You know, it's a typical life gets in the way and you go back to doing your stuff after after that. And when Adam's accident happened, that's one of the first things that, that popped in our head. Let's go to camp. So I called Paul and I said, listen, this is what we want to do. And Paul said, OK, sounds good, man. Sounds really good. We don't have a, a camp in that region in our system. Uh, you'll handle you know, you'll see kids from North Carolina, South Carolina, Southern Virginia, parts of Tennessee. Uh, that'll be kind of a region for you. And he said, I'm going to send three guys down to talk to you and to see, you know, you guys lay out what y'all want to do. So they came down. We sat in an office and we all talked about it. And they said, we told them exactly what we wanted to do, exactly what we wanted. We want to build a building that looks like a car. We want to do all this. I mean, we already had it in our heads what we wanted to do. So they talked for a while. and We talked for a while and then they asked us to leave. And then they invited us back in and they said, uh, we think we're going to pass. And we were like, "Okay, sounds good. And they, they were like, well, what do you guys think you'll do now? And we were like, build a camp. I mean, we never hesitate. Build a camp. And they're like, what? It's, it's going to be X number of millions of dollars. you know? It's, and we're like, listen, we raise millions of dollars to start at a white line, <laughs> and ride around for 500 miles, and end at the same place. We don't change the world. We don't do anything. We just ride around in circles. And somebody actually pays us to do that. What makes you think we can't raise millions of dollars to do good, to help people, to change somebody's life? And they said we just don't. We, we just don't believe we can. So Paul called me that night, and he said, "What? How'd it go?" And I said, "Man, your guys were great. They, they were very informative, and they knew ins and outs. They told us stuff um, that I never thought of." But Again, not a roadblock. We just got to figure it out. He said, well, listen, if they're not going to do it, I told him they, they didn't want, they wanted to pass. He said, well, if they don't want to do it, I'll do it personally. I'll be a part of it. So he sent us a check. We got started going. Bobby Labani helped us. Dale Jarrett helped us. And camp is the most amazing place in the world. For me, it is, it's just that place. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what's going on in life, you go there and the world is right. Uh, these kids are the most spectacular kids in the world and i realized in in this time of building camp and to backtrack just a minute is that i I truly believe that God put the petty family on this earth so that my grandfather would drive a race car and have a son that was incredibly successful in richard Petty and have another son that came along that was okay and then have another then have a grandson that came along or my son came along and when this happened, then the plan became clear. God had given you a platform to do good. Mm-hmm. Use your platform. And my platform was motorsports. My platform was NASCAR. The fans, the drivers, uh, the, the sponsors, the people that were part of it. And we built a camp. It is an amazing place. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you a quick story. If you've got one minute, I'm gonna tell you a story. Again, we see like illnesses. These kids are are so, so amazing. Some of the medicines, the amount of medicines that they have to take, the pain they endure, the things they go through, and they never complain because as my life was not a normal life, what they go through is their normal, just like mine was my normal and yours is your normal. So we had a little boy during burn week and this little boy came from Richmond and he had been in a fire that had started, not unlike yours, where the fumes caught fire and engulfed him. Not not the fluid, just the fumes And to begin with. He was about 80% of his body. He was so excited. He was was 12 years old, 13 years old. So excited when he got to camp. His mom brought him down and she was excited. And we do a thing at camp at that time. our, Our programming has changed a little bit, but at that time, they came in on Sundays, Sunday afternoons, they come in and they go straight to um, what we call the body shop, which is a hospital. Uh, and, and they would see our doctors and nurses. And, you know, basically we understand what your, what your medical conditions are and any, anything that you have so that we we understand what the week's going to be like. for you. And then you tour camp and they hang out and then we have a little bit of an orientation that night. So uh we see 120 kids. We have 240 counselors at camps. Two to one is our ratio. So this little boy was so excited when he got there and his mom left. And, but as more kids came, this this little boy withdrew. He, he just kind of went into a shell. The counselor that we had with him would, would talk to him. And, you know, he all he wanted to do was go back to the cabin. He didn't even want to go to orientation. Monday night, you know, we, we do a hot dog supper. Tuesday night, we do a thing called NAS Carnival. Uh, Wednesday night, we have a camp dance, Thursday night, we had a talent show, and then Friday afternoon, the kids go home, and that's kind of the system, but during the day, you're you're ropes course, and fishing, and horseback riding, and all the things. so Monday morning comes, this little boy doesn't want to leave the cabin, so we go through this deal, and everybody else is out running around, but this little boy, and he'd been so excited on Sunday, so by lunchtime, they were like, well, let's change counselors, maybe his counselor is not bringing him out, you know. So this is our first year. We're we're experimenting. We're trying to get things around. We go through all this on Tuesday, same thing. Finally, we put him with the camp director and the camp director does get him to go to archery. And that's about it. That's about it. He doesn't want to talk. He don't want to be around. He just kind of sets off. He comes to to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So anyhow, we do a thing at at that time where we had a big hula hoop ring. You wrap a ribbon around it. You come up to the front of the room and you say something you're thankful for. It's called the circle of hope. And if you can wrap the ribbon completely around it and continue and so many kids come up that you can't see through the hula hoop, then it's full of hope. It's full of thankfulness. That hole that once was there is now filled with hopefulness and thankfulness. Mm-hmm. So this little boy, he comes up and every, the kids come up to the front room and they get to speak in front of everybody. So some of them get pretty pumped up about it and they come up with crazy stuff and they'd come up and they'd take the microphone and they'd say, I'm thankful we're having pizza today. Yeah, you know, and or, I'm thankful I caught a fish for the first time today. Yeah, that's, you know, just anything, anything to be thankful for to get to wrap the rib. They just wanted to be up front. So this little boy, after three days of doing nothing, comes to the front of the room. So he waits his turn in line and he gets to the front of the room. He, he looks at Pronto, our camp counselor, and he says, I'm thankful there's a camp like this that kids like us can come to. And he's 12 years old, 13 years old. And you think that's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. So Prano gets ready to take the microphone. He said, I I got a couple other things to say. And he said, okay. And he said, I look around and he said, I'm thankful that no matter what happened to each one of us that we all survived and we're all here today. I'm very thankful for that. And it's pitch silence. The whole room is silent. And he says, can I say one more thing? And Pronto was just barely hanging on at this time. And Pronto said, yeah. And he said, I hadn't done a lot these first two days, but I've been watching everybody. And he said, and there's a lot of pretty good looking chicks here in tonight's dance night. And I'm going to hook up at this dance tonight. And for the rest of the time that this little boy was at camp, he was out of control. He wanted to be in the water. He wanted to be on a horseback. He wanted to do archery. He wanted to do everything. He just wanted to pack everything. He didn't do Monday and Tuesday. He wanted to do all day, Wednesday, afternoon, Thursday and Friday until his mom came. So his mom came. She picked him up and they left. She was back in about 15 or 20 minutes and they were looking for Pronto and looking for the camp directors. And she she went come into the office and she told Pronto, she said, thank you. She said, that is the little boy. That I had before his accident. So mischievous, so curious, so inquisitive, asking a million questions, just wanting to be there. But since his accident, he had withdrawn around other kids. And the camp gave him an opportunity to be around kids that he could be himself again. He could be who he was. And that is the most important thing that any child can be, is who you are. Just be you. You don't have to be anybody else. Just be you. And I think for him, that camp was that glimpse into what life could be, that empowerment. We didn't cure him. We didn't heal him. That's not what camp's about. Camp is about finding a a good place in your heart, finding a good place in your spirit, making friends, making lifelong friends, and and being empowered to just be able to do and be the person that you are. Um, And his mom came back and was a counselor at camp she volunteered her time for another eight or 10 years at camp. And he came back until he aged out Um, and camp meant that much to him. And he still means that much to camp. And we have had so many stories like that, that have come through camp that I tell people all the time. That's where I know Adam still touches us. Adam's still there. I see his smile. uh, And I know he's still here with us because that spirit and that love and that smile and that twinkle in your eye, Um, we're back to what we were talking about earlier with Adam, that you, you know, he's still here in some way. And that's so intense. Thank you for sharing that story. I went
0: to a camp like that as a kid, and I think it helped change and shape and form and remind me that my life had value. You and Adam's legacy continues to remind thousands and thousands of kids that they do too. You wrote a book that came out just recently called
1: Swerve or Die. Talk about the title of that book. It's pretty dramatic. It, it is dramatic. Um, and, and I won't say it was my first choice as the uh, as title for a book. Uh, but, but I think it's, it, it, it's very well describes what the book is. It well describes my life. And, and as we were just talking about, and, and I think people see the title and they think, oh, straight into racing. That's about racing. And, and it really has nothing to do with racing. It's about being willing and open to change. It's about being willing and open to hope and dream. It's about being willing and open to be bitter or be blessed, to be able to live. Uh, When things happen and things don't go your way, or, or there's crazy, crazy happiness and crazy tragedy you can use that as an opportunity and move in a different direction or move forward. Don't just stop. Don't just stop. When Randy's accident happened when I was 14, that's the loneliest, loneliest trip I've ever taken in my life to go home and have to walk in the house and know that Randy, who was only five years older than me and more like a brother was never going to walk through that door again. And I had to face my mom and that was her baby brother. It just killed me. But I couldn't take Randy's place. I could just be Kyle and you move forward. And then later, you know, with, with, with my grandparents and with, with Adam and when my mom passed away, so many things you think about, it, you just change directions and you just keep moving. And, you know, and, and, and die is a dramatic word, but not living is the same thing. You just have to keep living. You just have to keep moving. You just have to keep dreaming and hoping because there's good in everything. You know, there's opportunity in everything, and that's just the way I've always lived, and I think that's where the title came from. When when I sat down and really started dissecting it, and I dissected, you know, what I had written and where I'd come back to, um, it fit almost every chapter. The title itself fit almost every chapter, so for me, it was the perfect title in the end. Kyle, I can't thank you enough for making time to be with our audience today. We, we
0: have, with every one of our guests, seven questions that tie from... Kenny Wallace to Kyle Petty and everybody else in between together as one seven live inspired questions. The very first one is what's the most influential or impactful book
1: you've ever read? Ooh. So first you have to take the bottle out. Okay. Because that opens up to, because that is the most impactful. That is the most influential. That is the book um, that sets the tone. or should set the tone for for your life or has set it for mine From, from the time I was born. And my mom would read us a, a passage and a bedtime story that went along with it. From there, you know, it, it's, it's really so many books, man, so many books, The Old Man and the Sea, things like that, you know, that, that have a story of perseverance, that have a story of, of the dream and to keep trying and, and to keep moving. I think stuff like that. So I'll, I'll, I'll just go with the Bible because that, that's, that's the one that really encompasses everything.
0: But what is one positive characteristic or one beautiful trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in North Carolina that you wish you
1: modeled or exhibited as brilliantly today? The one thing that my mom always said I was, that I wish I was still more of was kind. She just said, you were a kind little boy that you would just give your stuff away and let people play with it and do whatever. And I think kindness is an all encompassing word that, that, is an umbrella for so many things for love and for hope and caring and everything else. So I think if I, if I could be more kind, that would be the one I would come back to.
0: Mm.
1: Well, there's a song jamming out. My boys and I are playing
0: cards a lot on the screen porch during the summertime. And last night, humble and kind was on repeat. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, Petty, I think you are both humble and kind. So I think your mom would be proud that little boy continues to model that characteristic, even as an old man in front of me today. So congratulations on that. If, if your home caught fire, and all living things, your bride, your babies, everybody's out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one thing you would come
1: racing back outside with? This is gonna be a crazy story. <laughs> so in 1968, 69, right along in there, my dad went to Vietnam on a USO tour. And he and some of the cup drivers and Indy car drivers, if you're of that generation and you had a TV in your house, The war came into your living room every night. And as an eight or nine-year-old boy who thought his dad had gone off to war, I was horrified to think that he was there. And he came back with a little carved statue. It's almost like a Vietnamese man who is a shepherd, who has a staff in his hand, and it's just carved out of soapstone. It's so funny. Recently, we were going through his house, and probably three or four years ago, and I saw it. And I I hadn't seen it in forever. And I said, can I have that? And he said, it's just a doorstop. And I said, it's more than a doorstop. It was the piece that you had with you when you stepped off the plane in Greensboro, North Carolina, coming back from Vietnam. And he said, yes, it is. He said, because they wouldn't let me, I had to carry it. It was heavy enough that I had to carry it the whole way back. And I said, I will never forget that as long as I live, you coming down the steps of that plane out on the tarmac. And that's the first thing that I saw was that little thing. And that meant that you were home safe. So for me, I would run back in the house and get that because that's a connection to my childhood. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a
0: long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you want to be seated next to?
1: Oh, Adam. Adam, my mom and I had tons of conversations. I probably talked her out, but I I think at, at 19 with Adam going so soon, We never had a chance to talk out the great mysteries of life. Uh, So I, I would say Adam. What's the best advice that you ever received? My dad would go all over the country and we'd stay at home and he'd be gone for three weeks. His homecoming meal was always special. And it was always cornbread and pinto beans. That's it. And it was such a humble meal. But the point of it was for him and the way he used to tell us is, is we're just regular people doing a crazy job. Don't get above your raisins. You're from level cross North Carolina. You're from rural North Carolina. And that's who you're always going to be. No matter where you go, that's who you're always going to be. And I find that the older I get and the farther away from there I am, the closer to being that person is who I am. So I think that that is the best piece of advice is just you are who you are. Don't try, to, don't try to be anything different. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? If You could go back in time just a couple of years, Kyle, and whisper a little bit of encouragement or wisdom your way. What would you tell yourself? I, th- I think I would tell that 20-year-old that time is the most important thing. The time you give others, the time you give yourself, the time you give yourself to grow, the time you give yourself to grieve, the time you give yourself to be happy, uh, the time you give your kids. Life is longer than you think, so pace yourself. uh, And remember, time is is the most important thing.
0: Kyle Petty, it has been said that all great people and drivers and authors and human beings can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence
1: to read? That's a great question. I think my one sentence would be, to sum up my life was, I just did the best I could. That would be it. Kyle Petty did the best he could. He
0: swerved and lived, and he reminds us that we can too in our lives. Kyle, man, I, just, I thank you for your work and living out your son's legacy as brilliantly as you are for making a difference, not only in thousands and thousands of children, but in the life of one
1: child at a time. That's the way it gets done, man. You do it well, I thank you for it. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. And it has been an honor and a pleasure to be a part of this. So anytime you want me back, listen, I can talk all day long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My friends, you've just heard the voice of Kyle Petty. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I loved Kyle sharing about his mom, Linda. Well, providing Kyle and his siblings with traditional schooling, yeah, that was important. His mother also saw other worldly educational encounters to be just as important. And here we go, teachers, educators, parents, guardians, grannies, and grandpas. Maybe even more important, those educational experiences that take place outside of the classroom. My friends, I experienced the benefit of formal education. Yes, thank you to all the incredible teachers who guided me forward. And I also experienced the benefit of receiving some of that education outside of the classroom, too. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for so many of those experiences. In particular, I remember, Mom, I'm looking at you right now, Mrs. Bartello coming into the house when I was a little boy, recently home from the hospital, unable to do anything, coming into my life day after day after day, teaching a little boy who did not believe, who did not have fingers, who did not imagine that better days could be in front of him, that he was wrong that the best of his life remained ahead. Now, sit back, John. I'm gonna tie a pencil to the end of your right hand, and we're gonna learn how to play the piano key by key by key during those lessons, not just learning how to play the piano, but ultimately learning how to live again. Thank you, Mrs. Bartello. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, educators, for that gift. And if you enjoyed the gift of hearing from this NASCAR legend, you may enjoy our sports and athletes playlist. All kinds of remarkable athletes from every kind of sport, including NASCAR. We'll keep it there for you, NASCAR fans. Kenny Wallace joined us. Six-time Olympian Jackie joyner Kersey Legendary sports broadcaster Bob Costas. My friend Joe Buck, among many, many, many others. Ozzie Smith looking at you, my friend. Well, the playlist will... Uh, will get you fired up to get your head in the game and elevate your perspective of of what remains possible in your life. If you want to listen to that or check out the rest of our podcast channel, just visit me right now online. You can see me there at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, thank you for buckling in with me for this race. Thank you for joining us this time for this episode. I appreciate you being part of our Live Inspired podcast family. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live Inspired. One thing I love most about my friends at Keeley Companies is their spirit and their passion for giving back to their communities across the nation. Keeley Companies was recently named a top corporate philanthropist by the St. Louis Business Journal, and I could not think of a more deserving organization to receive that honor. In 2021 alone, the Keeley Cares Foundation served countless people in need donated more than $2 million, and served for more than 20,000 hours. On top of that, they added an astounding 13 new charities to their ever-growing wall of compassion. Here at the Live Inspired Podcast, we are proud to partner with Keeley Cares throughout the year, improving our communities with time, with talent, and with treasure. You can learn more about their unbelievable impact by visiting them online at KeeleyCompanies.com.